Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts, what goes on in their minds, how they approach their work, and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions at what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous of spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This week, my guest is Georgina Staitler. Georgina is a multi-award-winning photographer from Albany in Western Australia. She specializes in photographing birds and her images are stunning. And her story to becoming one of the world's most recognized bird photographers is equally stunning. Her work is now widely published and awarded in major photo competitions worldwide. She will soon release her first book due out in October and will be a must purchase for any wildlife lover. So be sure to follow the links in her podcast page on my website for updates about when it's released. In this episode, Georgina talks about her meteoric rise in the world of wildlife photography, the challenges she has faced with her inner saboteur and being a woman in a male dominated industry. You'll hear all about this and much more before a quick message to remind you that I've teamed up with Nature Through the Lens it's a fantastic and free online resource covering everything from tutorials and equipment reviews to workshops and inspirational articles from some of the world's leading nature photographers. NTTL sell a range of ebooks for more in-depth learning, including topics about breaking into the business of wildlife photography, essential guides to using filters and tips and tricks for astrophotography as well. And if you want to purchase any of this amazing content, you can use the code MAT10, M-A-T-T-1-0 at checkout to receive a 10% discount. Right, enough from me, on with the show. Georgina, welcome along. It's so great to have you on the podcast. I've had a little bit of a, a gap um, longer than I uh, had anticipated. I've been really busy doing other things, so it's really great to kick things off again in the summer and you are also the furthest away guest I've ever had on the podcast which is also really exciting you're um near Perth is that right where where are you currently living now I'm currently in Albany which is four hours south of Perth so I'm right on the south coast the southwest coast very bottom of western Australia (laughs) and thank you for having me it's really really great to connect with people on the other side of the world yeah, absolutely. This is this is the, the the joys of it. It's fantastic, and I, I kind of had a little nose around um, your town on Google Maps and saw that you've not too far from home. Well, not too far by Australian standards. It looks like you've got some pretty nice national parks around <gasps> where you are. Oh, oh, man, we we have some amazing places. In fact, one of them. I'll just give it a little plug. Fitzgerald River um, National Park is like one of the top 30 biodiversity hotspots of the world. Like it's, we have so much unique and endemic flora and fauna, in fact, and we've got a lot of critically endangered animals down here. Um, So we're like 
the last refuge for quite a lot of species. So, And do you spend most of your time like close to home? I mean, you, I know you've just recently got back from a trip. You could tell us also a little bit about that. You were in a camper van, right? Was that... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we went up. Oh, yeah. So what happened is I what it's a bit of a local issue in our state is um, because we have big wildfires. They in the sixties they started to do prescribed burning, um, which is fine. Which is where they burn the bush um, in spring, unfortunately, or autumn or spring, um, uh, to try and reduce the fuel load. So, but what they've evolved into doing and they have a, they have a target each year of 200,000 hectares that they need to burn the department and what they're doing to do it is using helicopters and they're dropping incendiaries in a grid pattern across the national parks or the forests which is what happens is the animals have no chance to escape it's incinerating everything and they've actually destroyed a couple of irreplaceable peatland habitats um, they accident, they burnt, they, and the latest one, and this is where I was last week, was one of the only two remaining um, areas in the wild where we still get the critically endangered numbat, um, which is the emblem of our state, and they basically went through. There's a farmer who lives near there estimated there was about 65 of these numbats, and they went through and they dropped these firebombs over this entire area. And I took a walk around there and they live in logs um, and they said, oh, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't think any were killed. But, I mean, they must have died because the logs, some of the logs are charcoal. Um, it's blackened. There's areas where if any animal was there, it could not have escaped at all. Little, I mean, from the flames, let alone the smoke. Um, everything's basically dead. And it's really quite a disturbing issue and it's about two hours away from me so I said I spoke it's quite interesting because I spoke to an ex-politician and I said how can I make a difference and she said well because I used to be a lawyer and everything and I thought oh I could do something legally and she said you know what because I said I'm also on social media and I've got a big following she said you know what the best thing you can do she said you can go there and take pictures um and put keep it in the public so it was, it was a little bit disappointing in the terms of that's what I've come to being a social media person. <laughs> but, but it also shows the power of social media and these organisations who want to change, if you want to change government policy, and she, she used to be in government. She actually used to be the Premier of Western Australia and she's also been a federal minister. Um, she said the way governments work is they won't change unless um, public opinion, you know, forces them to. So, or, or that you know, they've got a reason to. So that's why I went out there and I spent a couple of days. Um, it wasn't about birds because I'm normally a bird photographer. I was I was primarily trying to get pictures of the burnt areas. Um, and actually, I saw I did see a number. I saw one on the edge of the road. Oh my god, they are the most beautiful animals you've. Oh, I just. You know, when I see them, and my husband was there, we were, he'd never seen one in the wild before, and this is only the second one I've ever seen in the wild. And it, you know that thing when you see an animal that you've never seen before or is so rare, you get so happy? Or even, it doesn't even have to be a rare animal. It's just any animal that's quite, you don't see very often. And it just gives you a lift for the rest of the week or the rest of the year, you know. You just, 
he's walking on cloud nine to have that interaction. There's no drug that can replace that no, feeling, is there? It's just no. magic. Yeah. I mean, even also when you, even if you see animals that are not rare and you, you're seeing the same animal that you learn, you know and love, you, you literally buzz with excitement. And it, that is one of the most magical things about being a nature photographer is putting yourself in those situations where you have the potential to see really exciting, really rare or really common animals that give you that buzz. It's such a joy about the job. Oh, it, it definitely is. And I, and I do some wildlife caring as well. And people often ask me, what's your favourite animal? And I think, you know what? It's a kangaroo. And it's because <laughs> we've raised orphan joeys. And when you've had one of those, they're like my children. And I remember every single one. Um, we, we would raise them to put them back into the wild. Unfortunately, they're very susceptible to diseases and things like that. So you often get a lot of heartbreaks, um, which is why I stopped doing it for a while. Um, but they're such loving and beautiful animals. So when I see them in the wild, I just, my heart, and Australians are so blase about them. I will never, I get that warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm like, oh, my God, I just love them. I love, 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 love. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great it's so great to hear i know it sounds like a, a, a cliche but you're right i guess you know kangaroos for australians probably are like foxes for brits right people you're just so used to seeing them it's not in any way exotic but we go to australia and see a kangaroo oh my god it's amazing so it's so nice to hear the stories about you loving your own wildlife and you mentioned um you know this this short trip that you've been on is detracting from your usual photography and we can come back to talk about the conservation side of your work but you're primarily uh, a bird photographer and you know in my limited research over the last week or so that I've, I've been doing on you, your story is fascinating and how you got into photography and how you got into specifically photographing birds so if you could touch on that a little bit and tell some of the listeners who don't know about you um you know, your story out from being a corporate lawyer into a, a, a wildlife oh, photographer would be great to yeah. hear. It's, it's actually, it's, it's even more than what you'd realise. It's quite interesting because um, I was working as um, a lawyer and I did work in a private law firm for years, for years, and then I was working in a Australian Securities and Investments Commission, actually investigating insider trading offences. <laughs> So I was, a, I was an expert in market manipulation offences. It's quite, it's and, and and oddly, I had a lot of bad experience with mining companies because when I was a was a working at a lawyer in a in a law firm, I was acting for the mining companies, and then at ASIC, I was prosecuting the mining companies. <laughs> and now I'm kind of lobbying my, you know, half lobbying the mining companies. But um, no, and I, I got out. I wanted to get out of the law. I was very. I was actually very depressed and quite stressed because it's a very, very stressful job. And um, I don't know if people realise when you've got – it's a very intellectually taxing job at, job at times too and you get your new stress because you've, you've got people's, you know, really complex issues that you've got to try and make decisions on. And the other thing they do is they, they charge you by the minute um, and I was being charged out at – this is oh, – Oh my god! I don't want to say it. It's almost twenty years ago. Even when I was just out of law school, they were charging me out at three hundred and forty dollars an hour. Can you imagine? I mean, that's a lot of money, and you had to account for every minute. And you get your managing partner would pull you in at the end of the week and say, "Oh, your utilization rate, which is um, 
they say you have to have six billable hours a day, that's six hours you can bill to a client, um, is only 70%, you know, you need to raise it up. And, and you know, to get six hours of legal time where you're charging someone $340 an hour, you had to work like 10 or 12 hours just to get a good, you know, anyway, I digress. It's a very uh, materialistic kind of status-oriented, power-oriented, money-oriented life it definitely is especially commercial law but it must have been it must have been completely seamless going from that kind of pay structure into wildlife photography because <laughs> we all know how well that <laughs> oh, totally so but I didn't I always loved photography and I was doing travel writing when I was working part every now and then I'd do a bit of freelance travel writing for the local newspaper um the West Australian, and in, in the end, I think I did about 20 articles. So we used to love travelling, my husband and I, and I, that was in the day when you had Fuji, Felvia. I was trying to take animal photos with Fuji. <laughs> so you did start on film, yeah. Oh, it's a tragedy. And anyway, I because all of those, I'd love to go back, and I'd done Africa and I've done Tanzania, you know, Tanzania and Kenya, and I've done all these amazing places in Peru. But, in fact, one of the places we went to before, just before I retired, my corporate job, um, was Peru. And we had a guide in the Amazon jungle, and he was really knowledgeable at, about birds. He was passionate about um, animals and the nature because he grew up in Puerto Maldonado, which is near the Manu National Park in Peru. Um, right. So we, when we got back to Australia, we invited him, we sponsored him to come back to Australia and live with us and my, my parents. So he spent, this Peruvian guy spent 12 months over here. And when he was staying with us, I wanted to, because he loved birds, I thought I knew nothing about birds. I was... And I told this, I think I sent something to you with it. It's absolutely a true story. I once had an argument with my husband <laughs> that the little pigeons were the babies of the bigger pigeons. Because <laughs> I thought there's only one pigeon in the world. I didn't even know there was more than one species of pigeon. I mean, this is how bad I was. I shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> and he's going, and he was the one saying, no, they're two different species. And I'm going, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and then we had this preview game, and I never forget. I just finished. I finished working at the law firm when he was there, and I took him to this this free bird walk um, run by BirdLife Western Australia, which is the BirdLife Australia um, the state office. And I, I turned up there, and I had. I remember I had a latte. And I still had my, you know, knee-high leather tie-up stiletto boots from <laughs> from my work days and a latte. And I remember, and I didn't have binoculars, so we go to this bird walk and I didn't have a hat, I didn't have anything. I just stood there with this holding this latte and I just remember this Peruvian guy looking at me and going, oh, my God, he said, you're not wearing that, are you? <laughs> Yes, and then he wouldn't come anywhere near me. So we go and find the birders and there's all these people standing there in binoculars with their funny little floppy hats and then there's you can just see them going, Oh my god, what have we got here? <laughs> hey look, we we a latte is really important on a on any birding trip. <laughs> can you imagine? Um so that and then I got talking to them and then they someone there told me they need people 
um, because I had some time on my hands, and they said they need someone to help them do the computer things, develop slideshows. So um, I went into the office, um, I think, the next week, and it was honestly, it was like coming home. They the most beautiful. There was these um, five or six people there, mostly older men, um, but they were all nature-loving, beautiful people, a complete opposite to where I was working in the corporate world. These were people who just loved nature. They were all retired. They had different backgrounds. One used to be a prison chaplain. One was a school teacher. One was a retired zoologist. Another was a retired IT person. Um, and it was wonderful. And they would give, we were the community education committee and we'd give talks to schools and nursing homes and probus groups around Western Australia. And so I would do the PowerPoint presentations for them and they'd say, we want to do one on bushbirds of Western Australia. So I'd get together all the photos we had and all the slides and create PowerPoint presentations of different topics. And, and I learned so much because I was doing migratory birds. So in one year, I, I, I knew that it was more than one pigeon. <laughs> 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 um, and I learned so much from these old bushies and these people and it was just wonderful. And, and then because I, was, I had to use photos and we didn't always have photos, I went out and I started taking photos myself. I was already doing landscape and other photography very badly. Uh, I was interested in photography, but I started to get more interested in bird photography. And, and did you have a, a moment where it became more than just, you know, like you did these trips to East Africa and to South America and obviously you enjoyed nature as a whole, but did you have a moment where you were like, ah, oh, actually, I can see how this is addictive. I can see how I have this thirst, you know, to want to learn more. And obviously photography is such a great way of learning, not only learning to take better pictures, but learning about the subject that you're photographing. Did, did Was there a moment or did it kind of happen over a long period where suddenly you were like, oh, actually, I'm really into this and I'm taking better pictures and my photography is improving? Uh, well, I've always loved photography. So I was always, even back then, taking the the broader pictures and then trying to do close-ups of things. But I didn't really have the right skill set to be able to capture the images I wanted. And to be honest, I probably didn't think that I was able to. And I don't know, it's one of those things where maybe it's this female-male thing we were talking about earlier, like I just assumed that I wasn't that technical kind of person, that I wouldn't really do it I, I didn't have a visual of of myself doing it and probably that's evolved because I ended up doing it but even when I did start to do it I think I told you I had a my husband bought me uh, I wanted to get better at bird photography afterwards um so and my husband bought me a big 500 millimeter prime lens um f4 and I left it in the box or um, in the cupboard for at least six months <laughs> I couldn't, I didn't even get it out. Um, so it took me a long time to. Yeah, was it a bit of imposter syndrome? I, I think definitely. And, and, but when I did take it out, I remember I took it the first time I went out and I was dry, I just drove along the roadside and I got these two swallows arguing on the fence. 
and then I saw the clarity, you know, the sharpness and the beautiful background blur. And, and from that moment on, it was like an epiphany. It was like, oh, my God. Um, it is about the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but there are many, there are many, there are many people out there with 500 f4 lenses who can't take a good picture. So it's, you know, and it's so interesting and and kind of fun as well hearing you talk about this, you know, this imposter syndrome or feeling like, you know, it was a really technical male thing. And I've got actually on my other screen here open, you know, just the, just the, just a few images on your blog and they're just absolutely stunning. And you just kind of think, and of course, you know, you're now multi-award winning and you look back not that long ago, the the evolution of your photography skills and your place in the industry is is in, is quite rapid rise and, and incredible as far as I'm concerned. You know, I feel like, wow, I've been doing this over 20 years and um, it, it takes a long time to get that portfolio and that skill set. But you seem to have done it relatively quickly. Um, I don't know whether you feel like that. Very weird feeling because I know what you say about getting the profile. Because suddenly I, I get these opportunities and people ask me things, and I think, well, they're picking me out and why? Why me? And it's a little bit weird from that point of view. And in fact, I was talking it um, about it to a friend today because I was having a bit of actually. It's funny we say this as well. And mental illness is a big part of it too. I think when you suffer, I did suffer depression and anxiety when I worked. Um, and so, in a, in a way, nature photography, when I did get into it and I did um, real, I, it fitted in because it, it was probably the saviour of my mental health in a way because getting out there in nature was really what I needed. Um, and whereas being in an environment where you're constantly under pressures and 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 um, it has the wrong values that don't – it's not an environment. I think there's terrible statistics about lawyers, like one in four or something or, or even half of them are depressed and anxious and things. Um, in nature photography, there's lots of studies now saying that, um, for instance, there's, a, there's one that says that birdsong, listening to birdsong is more therapeutic than meditation like it's more relaxing. And there's another Amazing. study that thinks it's, it's said it harks back to the hunter-gatherer days. Basically, it's an, it's a, if you think about it, when you were in nature and you were at peace, there was this calm that came over you and it meant there was no danger. And they think that when we go into nature, that's why it's relaxing. So if we talk about conservation and we talk about nature out there and nature in our backyard, another reason to value it is for the health of our whole society because there's an undeniable link between people's mental well-being and the amount of nature they have around them. So um, I'm probably digressing quite a bit. <laughs> I can't no, believe, I can't, that's I fine. I think it's, fa- it's, you know, in a way it's, it's sort of more fascinating in a way, but it was really about you know, this, this, and I completely agree with you. And, you know, there's study after study of it. And of course, nature became our best friend during the pandemic. And whether that was, if you had, you were lucky enough to have a, a balcony or, or, or a garden, or if you didn't, then if you were lucky enough to have a park close by, these 
places that we were allowed to go to um, in some countries were completely our salvation. And I think that did definitely um, make people appreciate it much more, understand it more, value it more. Um, and particularly, like you just said, the the stuff that's on our doorstep, that's what, what really is important. Um, but before we go on, I did just, yeah, we, I'd asked you about, um, you know, this rapid rise and this feeling of you, you know, suddenly taking, you know, more professional looking images. But I'd love you to tell this story about, you know, you deciding to basically shoot the other way that all the men were shooting. You know, I think that's such a great story. And I've always had this bit of rebellious streak, I suppose. So if everybody's doing it one way, I'd get really, really feisty and I'd go, well, I'm going to do the opposite. But anyway, I, I always loved, because I think I was influenced, I always used to look at the images of the great photographers, you know, and um, and people like Franz Lanting and um, Jim Brandenburg and, they, and also Arthur Morris, to some degree, his earlier work, um, using the light, the silhouettes, and, and just images that were really artistically beautiful. And so that was always, I suppose, in the back of my mind, that was always what I wanted to do. But, yeah, the story you were saying is, so I'd sit there and I'd be shooting into the light instead of with the light at your back. Which is, and I'd have, I've had that many men come up to me, and especially in Australia, they go, oh, love, you're shooting the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I think it probably makes it worse because I don't go out in the camo, so I don't go out dressed like the usual nature photographer, you know. And I could, I try not to wear white. I'm pretty good like that. Too many bright colours. And you've, you've, to be you've changed. You've changed from knee high boots as well. <laughs> I don't do the stiletto boots anymore. <laughs> Um, in fact, now I'm more like, I mean, I've gone the opposite, my poor husband. I'm mostly in thongs and, you know. <laughs> um, and and you know, normally I'm just in thongs and jeans um, and just a neutral coloured thing. And the, and the thing is when, even though you've got the big equipment, I think they're still thrown by the idea that a serious nature photographer is the dude with the camo and where even his tripod is camouflaged. <laughs> I think that's like, I love that. And I think if you're not like that, it throws people. And then they think, oh, you're not conforming to my idea of what is a nature photographer. And actually, that's why I like talking about it because I think there's young women out there and they don't want to be like that, or there's not in the instinct, or not even women, but anyone who's not conforming tends to be picked out from the crowd and kind of someone will come around and try and pull you down. And there's another story um, that happened. This I had just won the portfolio prize of the Australian Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year. So I was really happy and I was really proud and I had my mum with me and my husband and we went on this trip to northern Australia. And I went out for the day with this bird guide um, and he took me around and he, he was nice. He knew where the birds were and stuff. Um, but then a few days later he was on this tour with us on a boat cruise and I was the same guide like, yeah the same guide but he had a different he had a client with him an overseas client and the client was watching me take because I take 
the 500 millimeter lens and then a 600 are always handheld handheld I, I used to try and use a tripod but I just found it too restrictive I like creative things I like to be up and I doing different things so I just ditched it and then I would handhold everything and this guy was a very traditional photographer you had to have a tripod or it wasn't sharp and his client was saying, I can't believe you can get a sharp photo of this kingfisher on the boat hand-holding. And I said, yeah, I think you'd be, you can. And he's, he was saying, and my husband was sitting next to me, my parents are right behind me, and he was saying, no, you can't. And I said to him, well, I think if you looked at my website, you go, <laughs> you'll see that you know, I just won the Anzan Portfolio Prize, you know. I think you'll find that, you know, I can't, there are sharp pictures. And he goes to, and he said, you you know what he said? He said, I have looked at your website and they're not sharp. Oh. He did a total, total cut down of me in front of my parents, in front of this guy. And I'm like, I don't think that's ever left me. I think. Unbelievable. You know, that that's the imposter syndrome. Like I, and I wasn't confident enough to say anything to me, to him. And my husband said, you should have said that. And I said, I think I get so shocked and I feel so self-conscious because part of me is thinking, oh, I should be using a tripod or I should be doing this because that's what everybody else is doing. So when you do do different from the norm, you make yourself vulnerable to a lot of criticism. Um, and unfortunately people, I don't know, I don't know, but it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's a tough one, isn't it? You know, it, it's, it's it's just appalling. But I mean, I what the funny thing I think about that is underneath it, under you know, behind every criticism is a need, right? So what's this guy's need? He obviously feels threatened. You know, I think people that criticize like that, there's an insecurity in them, and I, you know, it's easy for me to say being a male wildlife photographer, but that is a is a compl a weird compliment because obviously you know you've you've you're winning awards left 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 right and center but it's true i think and and i think this is a tough thing and i i don't know how long ago this was this experience but is this something that you still carry with you when you're out in the field do you think are you conscious of it or, or are you very free it looks obviously it looks like from the result of your pictures you appear to be very free with your creative process well, because i, I think if you do. have these nagging doubts yeah yeah I think I still do. I do what I do, but I also, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I'm not part of that clique, you know. There's a whole group of them, especially the male, you know, alpha male photographers that still only use a tripod and they they still only shoot with the light at the back and and I feel, <laughs> and, and I'm definitely, you know, I still do feel, I suppose, a little bit, I, I don't know if insecure is the right word, but. Um, I definitely feel like sh almost shunned, you know, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that's, I'm always thinking, you can't let go of the idea that that's what they're thinking. Do you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> yeah. we're all friends together, you see. So I don't know. <laughs> so you get paranoid. But I don't worry about it because I try not to worry about it because I, I have to focus on, because what I've consoled myself is I am doing it differently and maybe sometimes my images could be sharper, say, if you had a, a tripod. But... But I'm also what not having it and the way I am has allowed me to be more creative and has made me unique. And I would rather be unique than, you know, with all the faults that I might have than be conformist. Um, yeah, and, and I guess you end up taking the same pictures 
that everyone in that group are taking if they're all lined up restricted with their tripods um yeah you yeah i i very rarely use use a tripod as well i, I find them completely restrictive i know that you know you you get down low a lot um you know many tripods don't go that low you can't move around you know obviously birds are incredibly quick you need to adjust quickly if you've got to start start like turning knobs and adjusting legs you know that moment is completely gone so you know i i totally get that you know it's it's interesting hearing you talk about that because you know when i interviewed um britta uh yashinsky she she talked about you know how she had to work harder being uh, a woman in okay she's not a traditional wildlife photographer by any stretch um more of a photojournalist but just in to get that recognition or to to be you know part of these groups or in the awards ceremonies you know that she had to go out and just work that that little bit harder or a lot harder um because of the systemic um sexism in the industry because of you know the experiences like you have had where guys are telling you you're shooting the wrong way. You know, there's uh, the, the Hollywood part of me would just love for you to just carry around, you know, certificates of all your awards and just hold them up. <laughs> Show all these guys, you know, what what you're doing right and what they're doing wrong. Um, but anyway, you know, it's 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 really great what you're doing. And I think I think that's kind of leads me on to my next question. We've talked a little bit about social media before this, but you know, you have this big following. Um, you're really generous with your processes and you give all these great tips and tricks and behind the scenes and a real kind of educator. But, you know, it obviously is a really good platform for photography, but it can also be a, a real pain in the ass in terms of comparing yourself to other photographers. And even just physically, you know, we, we have 500 F4 lenses, you know, 50 megapixel mirrorless cameras and all this great gear. And then you're looking at an image that's, you know, the size of your thumb on a screen. But um, yeah, talk a bit about your sort of relationship with social media and 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 reaching an audience, but also the the pitfalls, you know, we touched on a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a love-hate relationship with social media. Absolutely. Because there is no, I was finding at one stage, um, what it does, the way the algorithm works, if people aren't familiar with it, um, it's not that if you post a picture, everybody you follow or everybody who follows you will see that picture. What it does is it used to be like that. So a lot of the people who got in originally, um, it was much easier to get followers. So if you see a lot of us with, with a lot of followers, often we were there before they changed the algorithm. So we were able to build up a bigger following before they changed the algorithm. And they've changed it several times. And what happens now is if you don't post basically every day and have a lot of engagement with people, which means comments and, and things like that, um, or views of videos and things, um, it penalises you and it won't show your account to new people or to other people. So it rewards people who put more content on and the more regular the content and the more people like your content, then the more it will show your people, then the greater your following will be. So if you take – and the trick with – the one of the difficulties is you can get addicted to seeing the follower count go up and the like. There's no – I don't care if people say they're not. The trick is – what happens is it, it's almost like subconsciously you can't avoid it because you see it and then you get nice comments on a photo. That makes you feel better, right? 
then you post the photo the next day, it's nobody comments or the comments are really subdued and you know, right, and the likes. So, and some, and suddenly you don't feel as good anymore. And it's, so it's toying with your emotions, whether you want to or not. It's almost unavoidable. So what I, how I try and avoid that, I um, went off it for, I had this, um, I've got a book coming out later on this year and the publishers needed everything by the 1st of May, um, all the photos and the writing. So I thought, could I sit, could, should I keep doing social media? I was growing quite, you know, 30 or 40 people a day, which was a good growth rate. Or do I stop? And I knew that if I stopped, it would penalise me. But I, I made that decision to stop. It was the best decision I made because I found what I was doing at the time is just posting for the sake of posting a picture. So you go, oh, I've got to post. I've got to keep the algorithm going. I've got to. So you go and you just get any picture from your library and then you'd hate yourself because I really like, I think <laughs> I've, I've got two kinds of pictures. I like the quirky birds. I like where they show personality. So I tend to have, I like the quirky photos. And then I also like the artistic photos. It might be a bird in habitat or something. And almost inevitably the artistic photos don't do very well. Um, But also you don't have as many of them as standard bird photos. Now, if I post a standard red robin, I would get so many likes and I would grow. But I feel like if I started to do that, I'm compromising who I am so it's this real balancing between do you maintain who you are your uniqueness and then you're going to sacrifice not getting a following um or do you go and be commercial basically and you know you could try probably the answer and I'm thinking maybe it's somewhere in between and then you might say well why do you need a following anyway well the thing is once you start getting the following and I think I touched on it earlier about the numbers you start to realise that having a social media platform, you can do more conservation work. Um, You can raise issues. You can educate people about um, what's going on or birds or... And it's a really good platform for good things. Um, So that's why you would... And commercially, of course, it's a good platform because if I want to sell a book, for instance, obviously the more followers I've got, the more chance I will have of selling so there's all these reasons why you should do it so this is what I mean. it's a love hate thing and do I want to be sitting there I don't anymore in the beginning I used to go through and look at everybody's photos and photos and like and comment and then anyone anyone posted of my photo one of the the hubs would repost my photo I'd go there and then I'd reply to all the comments on that hub to my friend <laughs> And so now I'm like, no, that's it. I'm only going to reply to comments on my photo. And I, the first picture that comes up or people who like my photo, people who make a lot of comments on my photos, I do try if I'm following them. I do try and go to their photos and, and reciprocate. But I'm not going to go through my feed. I don't have the time to do it. And there are photographers I love. You know, like we're talking about Sandra Batoka. Like I'll go and I might search for her photos and see what they are. But you see that... If I wanted to see the people's photos I want, it would take me ages because the algorithm's only showing me who's who it thinks is the most popular, not necessarily who I want to see. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a real game to it's a real game to play, it isn't is. it? I mean, yeah. just, by the way, 
listeners, I was also taking notes. Thanks for all that amazing information, inside information about Instagram and algorithms. But no, I, I, I totally agree. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it and you kind of can be a bit of a slave to it, but I'm as guilty as everyone else. There's nothing, it feels great, of course, when you when you put a post up and people are saying, wow, this is amazing and you know, writing nice things. You get that little hit, don't you, of, uh, of, of dopamine and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it feels good. And that is good because you are sharing stuff that are in that tiny little moment, you're putting a smile on people's faces and you might be educating them. And so it does have a place. I think you're right. It's just when it becomes... You know, some people have a healthy relationship with it. Some people have an unhealthy relationship with it. And I think when you start moving into that unhealthy side, then you know that you've really got to address it. Well, you know, I did have a guy once say to me, back in the days when I was co- I was stopping to comment on everybody's photos because it was taking up too much time. And some guy sent me a personal message going, another Australian photographer going, why aren't you commenting on my photos anymore? Um, <laughs> got really aggressive. And I ended up having to to block him but he some people are really sensitive and I remember my friend's husband saying if you have self-esteem issues don't go on social media <laughs> and I think that's right I think that's absolutely right don't go on it to redress any to get you know to try and make yourself feel better because it's not going to do that it's going to it's going to no it's, it's, any, the, it's the opposite isn't yeah, it yeah yeah you've got to be pretty Robust, my goodness yeah. you really do yeah so going back again to you know you starting to get good quality pictures and you know recognizing that in yourself and you know one of the big things for a lot of young photographers or people changing career is you know how to get their work out there how to gain recognition did you you know you you were, you were working um, you know, help, helping these guys put slideshows together and you had to go and get photos yourself and then you started building a por- good portfolio of work. Did you then start sending stuff into magazines or, you know, obviously you have social media, but how did you then start to, you know, build this recognition, which I know doesn't happen overnight, but what was your approach in in getting your work out to the wider world, kind of over and above social media posts? I think um, this way competitions are really important and, and probably... Mm. I did still do a few articles on um, – I actually did a <laughs> – you can make a travel photography. You can have a travel article out of bird photography. <laughs> so I got a few um, – yeah, I managed to wrangle a few travel articles out of bird photography in, in WA and things like that. Um, but But that's a different audience really. I think – Competitions is, is the one where you get peer your peers starting to acknowledge who you are and and um, and other people. So Australian Geographic it used to be called Anzang Australian Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year competition is the main competition nature photography competition in Australia. So when I started my dream, I remember just telling someone the other day my dream was just to get one image in. Um, in image into that competition, the final. That was all it was. I didn't, there's nothing about winning or anything. I just wanted to get an image in. And I remember those first photos I put in were terrible. You know, you look back and they are terrible, but it's a really good learning process. And I tell people, even if you never enter the competition in the end or, you know, if it's too expensive or other issues, 
you should still pretend at least you're going to enter because it's that process of objectively looking at your photos, forcing you to process them and then enter them in something. And then you also, if you, if you don't get any in and you've got a photo that you really love and you've entered in a couple of competitions that's not even made it to the finals, then that's someone telling you that it's not that great, you know. Um, well, it depends. You can't always, that's not always true. But it, if you think, there's one couple of photos I always thought were really quite good and they never ever did good and I and I came to and I look back at them now and I know why but at the time you don't really know why but you're starting to suddenly realize that there is an issue and you need that you need that critical feedback because I always tell people don't ask your mother because I did this once where I go mum I got to about the fifth fifth photo and I pointed out something in particular in the photo and she goes oh just wait I'll go and get my glasses <laughs> <laughs> and she'd been telling me they're all wonderful and I was like, okay, yeah, don't ask your mom. <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah. Having a good editor is uh, is very important, isn't yeah. it, in, 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 in that process. And and it helps you develop that that thick skin because there is a vulnerability to it, isn't there, when you're showing people well, your work, you're exposing yourself, yeah. Absolutely. And, the other, and then when you do get one in, um, especially in Australia, that's when – People knew who, that's when people start to notice you. Um, it's a national competition. And then you just, honestly, and it's very important if you want to build a business in photography um, and you want to get a profile, competitions is probably one of the main ways to do it. I know lots of great photographers who never enter competitions and, and they're, they're known in their area, but they're not really known any further than that. Um, mm. But the other thing I did is I did used to put images in stock libraries and it was back in the days when they had um, uh, eye stock and Fotolia. It was years ago. And you know when you had to do it and they were really, really, really strict about the image quality. So it was quite a good learning curve yeah. too about making sure I had to work out what halos were and you know, chromium's noise and things like that. It forced me to look at all these issues and if the photo was too dark or it was too something, they were quite blunt about it and it would get rejected. So that was actually quite a good way of improving the technical side of it by having that critical view. You never make any money out of it. <laughs> Not those yeah, ones and anyway. <laughs> and that's also obviously one of the great things about competition competitions as well is they have, you know, very strict criteria uh, about about how you process them and and you know how how you crop them etc. But you know again looking at your awards and nominations you've built up quite a list. Um, so it is clearly important to you. But of course you know you've talked uh, a lot and had that great experience of having having an image in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year. So talk a little bit which about that experience. Bird, which wasn't a bird. It, which was really it wasn't a bird. <laughs> Well, it look, was we, flying. <laughs> it was something flying. <laughs> um, yeah, talk a bit about the picture, and we can we can put a link up to the picture um, in your page on on the podcast section of the site. It would be great to um, hear you talk I, about it and, and that, that experience. Yeah, and um, I actually went to this waterhole in um, the Wheatbelt area of Australia, which is in summer, which is really really dry. So it was the last water in a long white in a lot in a large area 
And I went there because thinking I'd get all these cool birds. We have mulga parrots and things come down to drink water. And while I was lying there, I noticed, um, because I'd be lying at the water level anyway, I noticed these mud wasps coming in and mining the mud. And it was really fascinating. They'd fly around with these little balls of mud. So I had the 600-millimetre lens, um, and you don't normally photograph insects. Right? Most people not normally thinking to photograph them with a 600-millimetre lens. But I was lying there, um, and so I decided to try and photograph them because it was absolutely the most fascinating behaviour. So what I did is I pre-focused, but to track one of those little insects with a massive, with a big telephoto is almost impossible because they're, they're small flying insects. So I quickly worked that out and I focused where they were mining the mud. Um, there was, a, they'd make a little hole and then they'd just go deeper and they'd disappear into it and then pop out with a little ball of mud. <laughs> and I think there was one, there was one there. So I, I pre-focused on that one and then I do my favourite spray and pray mode, which is what I do for birds in flight anyway, which is the continuous shutter speed mode. I, I used a bigger aperture because I thought, well, I mean a bigger number. I always, always run into trouble spraying apertures. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was F11 or something. Or F, because, and it was quite a bright day, so I could have a fast shutter speed to freeze the action. It would have been at least probably around 5,000 of a second. Um, I had a, I probably pushed the aperture to try and get more depth of field because they're such little little wasps. Um, and I was only probably about four metres away from them. So I was at almost at the minimum focal distance for, for that lens anyway. And then as they came in, one came in, I just hit the shutter and then that's the spray and pray. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I took spray, that. Spray and spray, spray, yeah, spray and pray sounds like, you know, okay, obviously you are relying on a, on a bit of luck, but it's great to hear the, the thought process and you know the pre-focusing and thinking about your depth of field you know these are all very technically challenging things to shoot and like you say I think the effect of shooting those tiny insects with with such a big lens is what makes that picture and really also, powerful and really clean sure you're at ground level too because the mud was quite messy and the whole scene would not have been very attractive if you had had more if you'd been standing and you're looking down because you would have got more of the water surface and things or, or yeah. everything else in focus. So, um, and it just goes to show. I say to people, the same principles apply for all kinds of nature. Once you know you want to freeze action, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, the problem people have is too slow a shutter speed. It's just across everything. Sure. So once you understand those principles, you cannot. And I say to people, it's not that hard. Honestly, I'm, I'm not serious. It's not hard about anything. And if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that's great advice. I mean, and lo and behold, you you not only entered it into the competition, you only went and won the the category. I did not. Um, I screamed for about three months. I and, think. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'd love to have seen your face when you when you got that email. That must have been quite a treat. Oh, I screamed. I screamed and screamed. I actually screamed. I couldn't sleep that night. You know when you're just lying there and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> that is awesome. And also, you know, we were talking – we were talking earlier just about how how hard it is to get something you know in that competition 
uh, it's, it's, I'm always encouraged when I get, you know, the raw file request, you think, okay, you know, your images are getting through, but you know, to get a highly commended is, or you just to get in the hundred is an achievement, but to, to win a category, you know, you're one of 12 or 13. I don't know how many there are, um, of, of the winning photographers. What a, what a great feeling. And again, you know, that's what you can tell the guys who put camo on their tripods that you were a category winner in, <laughs> in the wildlife photographer of the year. <laughs> and you know, when I was, when I was taking those photos, I didn't say I had a couple of kangaroos in the car. <laughs> I thought it's so Australian. <laughs> and I thought when I was giving the, the, the acceptance speech, I thought, do I mention the kangaroos? No. <laughs> I thought it's just, it was so cliche. Couple it's like, there's a couple of kangaroos in the car. Kangaroos in the car. Yeah, I know. Um, and but also uh, touch on those wasps. I took just so people know there would have been two or three thousand images I took that day. So um, and people are always seeing your best shot, and they never see all the stuff you throw out. Um, of so, course, but, and you yeah. have to be prepared to press the shutter to get the shot. And I say that, it sounds trite, right? But I've had people who just have like a shutter phobia. <laughs> 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 they don't want to take the photo. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think a lot of those photographers are photographers that grew up on film, you know, because it was just costing so much money. <laughs> anyway, I um, there's a couple of like big topics I want to cover before we slowly start coming to an end. But you mentioned earlier about a book. So you've got a book coming out. This is really exciting. Um, how much can you tell us about it? What's the story? When it's going to be published? Because I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to this would love to get their hands on a copy. Yes, well, um, it's going to be published. Um, we're just doing the layout at the moment, but hoping it's going to be published in October this year. Um, so in time for Christmas, um, it's about Australia, It's basically Australian bird photography, and what I what I wanted to do was have a book where I showed people because what I'm worried about is in this day and age of social media, a lot of people are using more and more intrusive methods. Um, and staged methods, but staged is not really a problem. I think it's when you start interfering with the natural behaviour of the animal um, just to get a photo, just to post on social media, and there's a lot of it happening. Um, and think people do things like nail worms to sticks, and there's one guy who even ties an elastic band to the worm so that when the robin pulls it, it doesn't come off straight away. Um, and it just <laughs> troubles me, and I want people... Because birds are already under an enormous stress from climate change, from habitat destruction and disturbance, from noise pollution, from all kinds of stresses, I think the last thing as photographers we want to be doing is adding another layer of stress. So my style of photography is to go, I see where birds are. Often I go and I sit down and I say to people the number one reason to get low, whether you're lying or even just sitting, is nothing to do with the angle, that does help and eye contact is wonderful, but the number one reason is the animals are less threatened. And I have had birds that are really normally very flighty. I even I often go out photographing with my dog tied to me and she's a Belgian shepherd. Um, wow. And she would chase them if she could, but because she's tied to me, she, she doesn't. Obviously she doesn't and she <laughs> lies down next to me. And we've had avocets who are really flighty. I've had them walk. So close, I can't focus on them anymore. And now, 
Wow. That is only because they have assessed human on the ground, dog there, they're not threat to me. So you don't need – in Australia, we don't have a big hunting culture. In some countries, I know like a, I've been to France, you know, where they shoot everything. <laughs> and you just look at a pigeon from a, from a kilometre away and he's taken off. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. We've got a French friend and I say, you, you've, you've hunted all your birds and he, he says <coughs> – he goes, yes, and they were very nice too. <laughs> yeah, so I want to have this book where I say I didn't – none of these birds were taken like um, using food, using call playback, using any way of, of – they were all taken in nature. The birds were just doing what they were doing um, without interfering with them, and I want to encourage more people, and especially young photographers, I want to say to them, you can get great photos. You don't need to go out and have this whole thing where you – I mean, in some countries, um, the tourism is quite important to saving whole ecosystems. So, you know, like you see a lot of photos in South America with the birds at the feeding stations, and, and I don't have a problem with that because that is helping to save. But in places like Australia – um, I think we're so blessed. You don't need to do anything. You can get great images, and I want to show people that. I always also want to show people that images don't just have to be a bird on a stick. And habitat images are very, very important um, for going into the future for people to understand why it's important important to conserve whole ecosystems as well. And I also want to show people that birds have personalities, and they're not just a representation of a species. They're individuals. They're quirky. They do really quirky, silly things. They're, they're wonderful. They're always doing things that surprise you. They're, oh, my God. And that, that's the kind of images I love. I don't want to see a static bird. I want to see a bird. You know, you so often never see them preening or you never see them yawning or something. But people must cull those pictures. They must throw them away. And I'm like, they're the pictures I love because, you know, they give a personality, you know. So this is okay. It's about the book. I've got carried away. But I hope <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm hoping to show people that this is natural nature photography and just give people a different perspective from the norm. And also I think that, that sounds so great. Yeah. It's, Proceeds are going to go to conservation. My proceeds, one hundred percent, are going to conservation. So, yeah. Look, no, no offense, Georgine, but I know from experience you don't make any money from photography books. So, <laughs> those poor, those I poor mean, conservation organisations. <laughs> I know. Do you know what I? I say that, and then I say, just so you know, it's not going to be a lot of money because I'm thinking like maybe one thousand hey, dollars or something if you're lucky. <laughs> But of course, books are so important. I think not only for you as the photographer, it's a, it's a photographer once said to me before I published my first book, you know, this is going to be your best portfolio. And, and in a way it is. And I'm really happy that the digital revolution and our obsession with, you know, phones, tablets and desktops hasn't taken away from that that tangibleness if such a word exists of holding touching a book you know that's exquisitely printed and I'm sure your book's going to look absolutely beautiful and I definitely will definitely will be getting a copy and I think you know you talking so enthusiastically and 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 excited about it is it's the best you're going to be the best marketer of your book and I also really love what you say about the process and I (laughs) and you're really 
you know, that whole idea of just spending time in nature and not, you know, so much in life now is instant gratification. We want to try and get quick fixes. And that means like rubber banding a worm to a tree and just waiting. And those, you know, those images are never going to look that natural either because they've just completely interfered. And, you know, by spending time and not rushing and not trying to get these, you know, pictures in a real hurry, but just spending time with them. And like you say, getting the animal used to you, that's when they're going to start behaving naturally because you, they're, you're not a threat to them. And that's how you're going to get the best pictures. So it is a really good lesson to learn for young photographers. And I know you're really strong on ethics. So I think it's a, that kind of story is a really important one to tell. Yeah. And, and for instance, another example, and I kind of had this epiphany because I've never liked people using call playback, which is where they play the birds on call back to them because it does raise the, the, the stress hormone levels in birds and um unnecessarily but I, I i had this epiphany when i was out photographing last year and whenever you see grass rings are quite hard birds to photograph in australia because they tend to be quite shy and they don't sit up a lot so most of the photos you see you see the birds are really alert and the, ta- the tail will be erect and everything and that's because they've used core playback to get the bird out and because i never do the, do you know what i came across sand bathing grass rings they were having a little sand wow. bath, these two grass wrens. And you know what? I thought if you were so busy using core playback to get your thing, you're not, you're missing out on all this beautiful natural behavior because they're not stressed. They're not responding to some, what they think is a threat in their territory. They're behaving perfectly natural. So when you are doing all of those things, like you were saying about the foxes, they're not behaving in interesting ways. It's exactly the same with birds. If you see Birds that are always erect in that, you know that people have used something to get them core playback. I want to see, and they're never going to get that interesting behaviour. This is what I want to get across to people. It's the natural behaviours that are fascinating, they're interesting, and how beautiful. Two little sand baby grass reds. Oh, they were so adorable. But, you know, I've never seen pictures <laughs> of it because people don't, I think they just don't bother. They don't spend the time. They want to get this photo and move on to the next species. Yeah, amazing. And how many, in terms of the species in this book, are these all birds that are local to you? Have you have you travelled the the breadth of Australia to get these pictures? Oh, I've done a lot of travelling over the years, so I'm going to try and incorporate birds from across Australia. And for instance, there's some from Christmas Island, which is um, about a thousand kilometres offshore. It's still Australian territory, but it's actually quite Indonesia. Um, but um, it wow. is, I am trying to cover. I mean, look, it's not finished yet. And I, I don't want to talk it up too much because I'm really, you know, you, do you get really nervous? I get really nervous because I don't have total control over it either. Um, so, you know, I am still at that nervous stage where I was like, oh, I don't know what <laughs> it's going to look like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, in a way, it's, it's, I'm fortunate in that I've set up my own publishing company. So I, I, in a way I do have, but I I do hand that over to designers and repro people, but, but obviously can have a say, but I think it works both ways because photographers can also not be the best designers. And also, as we've already talked about, can also not be the best editors of their own work. And it's really, (laughs) really important to have, have good, good editors, but Anyway, listen, I'm sure it's going to be an amazing book and I can't wait. Can you tell us when it's going to be available? I think October. That was the timeline we had originally. So it just depends how everything goes. But this is a great learning curve for me too because I've never 
published anything. So it's a bit exciting. I mean, you're maybe, I don't know, you're, I don't know if it's a male thing or something, but you've got that confidence that you could go out and you do your own publishing company. That is amazing to me. That's just, that's incredible. <laughs> do you know, that's, it's funny. This is, this is, this is funny how, um, how you perceive that because actually the reason I ended up going out and publishing my own books was the, the very first one anyway. Um, I didn't plan to do it. It was basically because no one took on my publishing idea uh, of this book that I did on the west coast of Vancouver Island. I wrote to 16 publishers and got 16 rejection letters. And I was just like, you know, beside myself. So I worked with the business advisor here and she said to me, like, why don't you just do it yourself? And this was back in 2010 and self-publishing was growing. And I was terrified thinking, oh, how the hell am I going to pay for this? And it was even pre-crowdfunding days. So it was, you know, it sounds now like, yeah, Mr. Big Confident, I've got a publishing yeah. company. It's actually, <laughs> all it is, is all, all it is, is buying S ISBN numbers, um, of which I have 10. I've used four. Um, and I thought to myself, well, actually, if I do 10 books in my life, then, then that'll be a success. It's so so it sounds, it sounds, yeah, it's really exciting. I, I really enjoy the process. I love, you know, the storytelling side of it and, and do, you know, taking the time to do really long projects, getting under the skin of the place. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the point of the, it's definitely not about making the money. Yeah. You want to balance the, the books properly and, and do it right. But it's, it's much more about the message, inspiring people. And, you know, I know how conservation minded you are with photography. And actually, I wanted to go back and touch on this trip that you've just recently come back from because, you know, we talked about you be, being primarily a bird, bird photographer, but this was very much a, a conservation focused story. So is this you, you know, going out of your comfort zone to, to tell different stories or important stories, you know, moving more into a photojournalist? side of Georgina Stateler? Yeah, do you know, it's, it's that dirty word, photojournalism. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got a friend who's a really amazing conservation photographer and I can never pronounce his last name, so don't shoot me, Doug, if I get your like Doug Jimsey? Jimsey? I don't know if you – he's had a few photos in um, – in, he's had in Wildlife Photographer of the Year and a few other yeah. ones. Oh, he's yeah, incredible. I know. Follow him. He's incredible. Yeah. 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 Really, really he, good. And he always makes me feel a bit guilty because I think, oh, Doug's so – and he's always sending me these great, you know, conservation stuff and um, and he does so much. And I, it's interesting because what happened is when I got into bird photography, you then get carried away with the bird photography. And, you know, with social media, you can get carried away almost with your own – photography and it's all about bird photography and all of this and I felt like I lost why I started which was because I love birds and I was doing more conservation and community education stuff and that kind of all fell away and then it was just about the photography so I wanted to get back and it's what is interesting it was after the wildlife photographer of the year and I thought you know I came away from that really inspired but also wanting to make more of a difference in the world than just taking pretty bird photos I wanted I want to do more and and I, I I get so depressed. I don't know if you remember my speech, but I get quite emotional when I think about everything that's happening. Um, and That's what and, I remember the most about meeting you at the Wildlife Photographer of the Year was your speech was, uh, was really moving. Yeah, it was unscripted. <laughs> that's probably the problem. <laughs> that's the problem when I get – and I, I was – 
<laughs> I was emotional and I don't do get emotional when I think about and I, I get stressed at the moment. You've been talking about this number and this conservation issue that I'm talking about. It, it, that anxiety in me starts working on me because you get frustrated and I want to make a difference. So how can I make a difference? And that's where I want, I'm at with my photography now. I want to use everything I've learned and maybe the profile that I've raised to try and make a difference because that's, in a way, it's the only way I can cope with the way things are is if I'm doing something. I can't just sit around and complain. I have to be someone who's thinking I need to actually that's the only way I'm going to be able to get through this if I know I'm doing something about it. Even if it's a small thing, I'm doing something. I'm not just, you know, watching it happen. So I guess it comes back to that thing, you accept yeah. the things you can't change. And if you can change something, then you try – you've got to be the mosquito, I decided. So I, I heard this saying and it was like, if you think you're too small and insignificant to make a difference and you've never spent the night with a mosquito – and I thought, it's so true. And, and so my new motto is I'm going to be, be the mosquito. <laughs> we can, we're small and insignificant. Yeah, I think there's an, an enormous amount of pressure on on wildlife photographers to, you know, suddenly become conservation photographers. And if you're not, you know, like like a, like a like a Doug or, you know, there's so many, you know, like a, whoever, Charlie Hamilton James and all these great photographers doing really great conservation focus work you know neil aldridge is another brilliant conservation photographer you know these guys have that skill of finding the story of of of, of, of storytelling with photography rather than you know being traditional wildlife photographers and that's okay it's okay it's 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 okay for these guys to do that and for you to do traditional wildlife photography or whatever you want to call it you know and sandra to take really beautiful you know atmospheric pictures and i talked to her about this as well about conservation photography that people get touched in many different ways. And if you can, you know, touch someone with a beautiful photograph that they then might go on and read a little bit more about where that was taken or understand that that was taken in a protected area, or oh, that's interesting, I might go and visit it and, you know, pay an entry fee or buy a book or something, you know, that you're just planting seeds and you don't have to be a hardcore out there on the front line conservation photographer to make a difference. You can just inspire people about nature and particularly, you know, what you and I are doing is nature that's close to us. And I think that is a really, really just as important and just as valuable for sure, even if it's not quite as exotic or dramatic as some of the pictures that these guys are getting, you know, uh, we still have a role and that's, that's really important. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because there's, there's always a, uh, I should be doing this and I should be doing that, you know. There's always <laughs> should, 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 should be should eradicated I? from the <laughs> English dictionary, shouldn't it? <laughs> oh, no. We, the, and we're our own words and we put the most pressure on ourselves. No one else has to say anything, I think. We, we, yeah. we do it ourselves. So, yeah, um, tell me about the, the, you know, the images that you got from this, from this, the shoot that you did over oh, well, the last few days and it wasn't, wasn't so much about the images as as video in fact so what i did is i ah. got a drone up and i went over the the area what i want to do is it's it's more of a local issue so it's uh, what i want to do is is i also went to a conference on fire and biodiversity because i want to learn the facts i don't want to just be spouting stuff which I don't really know. So I wanted to understand exactly what the science was 
that people are relying on um, what the history was. And I've kind of got a lot of that and I've got the resources. So what I'm going to do is spend a bit of time researching and then I'm hoping to do like a little, like a three-minute video just showing some video footage. So there are some photos, you know, I did close-ups of burnt leaves and things like that. Um, and there's actually a bit of fungi growing, which is actually really interesting after the burn. And wow. just put it together, but try and put it in a way with the facts there and then just encourage people to think more about it without being too confrontational about it. Um, so because I think it's really important because people are shutting off debates are really polarized and if you say something you find some people just shut off and they go oh you're just that side of the argument and I'm on this side we don't get to meet and I want to try and stop that and say by just focusing on facts and the science that's there and it's kind of we have this here we should be worried and all we're asking people to do is just rethink what's happening um, and uh, and asking the government to rethink their policies, you know, it's not we're not asking for, you know, a revolution. So hopefully I can do sure. something. But I'm sure. look, I'm embarrassed to even mention it because I'm such an amateur and I'm terrible with videos. So don't go expecting anything. <laughs> this is not a National Geographic <laughs> level of thing. This is this is the beginning. I think. If you want to learn something new, this is a tip for everyone. If you want to learn something new, just give it a go. And then you learn it might be rubbish what you do, but you've learned already an enormous amount in that process and you can only get better. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're, you know, you, in a, in a, it's, it's almost a, a tip coming from you, you know, from someone who said that they, they thought a, a smaller pigeon was the baby pigeon of the exactly. older pigeon. And look how you've, you know. <laughs> Look how far you've come in, in those in those ten years. I mean, it's incredible, Georgina. Your story is in, incredible. It's been inspiring and so lovely to talk to you. And um, thank you so much for sharing your time. I can't wait. Well, I can't wait to see the video because actually, I think you're probably being a bit humble about it. I bet it's no, really no, nice. No, I bet it's being really humble. <laughs> I bet it's going to be great. I, I, I can't. I can't wait. I can't wait to see the this this evolution. Um, and I, you know, of course, video is is something that's it's at our fingertips with these cameras that we've all got. So let's use it to tell the story in a different way. I think that's really important. Um, well, and and there's so much exciting stuff. As it's the beginning. It's the beginning, Matt. I, I'm from now on. I'm going to try and. Try and diversify. I love learning anyway. I love learning new ways of doing things. I love learning new skills. So um, I'm not someone who's happy just to keep doing the same thing over and over, you know. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's that's evident. And I'm, I encourage everyone here, definitely go and check out Georgina's website. Um, obviously, her Instagram, Facebook pages. We'll put all the links to all your social media in the page on my uh, on, on on your page on my website in the podcast section and um, yeah get in touch with Georgina with nice things to say about her work because um, it's been really really a, a great journey to watch and, and unfold and I'm you know even in just the, the two years or three years now nearly since I met you it's been this meteoric rise and what a great story so thank you so much we will. Uh, continue the conversation and well definitely it'd be great to get you back on after you've had your book published um we can 
talk about that and and, and give that a plug. Um, it'll be be really exciting to see. So yeah, thanks again. Okay, thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's been great. Thank you so much, Georgina, for your time. And I cannot wait to see the new book. I love seeing new images from her pop up on Instagram. They always put a smile on her face. They're instantly recognizable as well, which is a a real testament when, wow, there's just so much noise out there. There are so many wildlife photographers doing really, really great work. So it's extra hard to stand out from the crowd. Um, To find out when her book will be released, head to georginastatler.com.au there'll be links again on her page on the podcast section of my website and keep up to date with all her work on instagram and facebook and um yeah that's where she's most active oh and also if you want to see a link of her winning photo in wpy in 2018 um which is pretty spectacular incredible behavior incredible that these two tiny insects are in uh, the same focal plane you'll just see that. that's one of the things i really love about that picture it's just so shallow and both are pin sharp um again head over to the podcast section of her page on my website and um, you'll see that there and please share this podcast with your friends family loved ones leave a review on itunes and don't forget to check out nttl.com For so much information and inspiring content, use the code MAP10 for a 10% discount on all ebooks. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.